Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hi, this conversation includes graphic descriptions of sexual abuse that may be triggering to some listeners. Please take care while listening. everyone, I'm Amy Ziering, one of the filmmakers of Alan V. Farrow, as well as the host of this podcast. For the last three and a half years, we've been working on this series about one of Hollywood's most notorious and public scandals, the accusation of sexual abuse against Woody Allen. I made this project with my creative partner, Kirby Dick, and amazing producer, Amy Hurdy. Hello, everyone. Hi, it's great to be joining you. Kirby Dick was the co-director, Amy Hurdy was the lead producer and lead investigative producer. So our goal with this podcast is to give you deeper access and understanding with never-before-heard recordings, which we couldn't fit into the series, and brand new interviews, while also giving you details on how we reapproached, reexamined, and reinvestigated this case. First, you'll hear me speaking with Kirby Dick and Amy Hurdy about how this series got started, as well as hear some new interview clips from the Pharaohs and family friends on the household dynamics that we had to unfortunately leave on the cutting room floor. Our special guest is Dr. Sherry Venino, who is an expert on sexual abuse. Then we'll have family friend Priscilla Gilman on the podcast to talk about what her experiences were like growing up with the family. So, Kirby and Amy, let's get to it. Everybody, I'm sure, is curious to know how we came to make this sort of the origin story and then how we went about doing it once we decided what we were doing. So I can start that off saying that Kirby and I have had a film company and been a kind of a film team for quite a long time. And we had made two projects in the sexual assault arena previously. And each time we would screen those films, incest survivors would come up to me and say, please, can you look into what happens in the home? And so I think we approached Amy, right? And we said, hey, we want something in this arena, right, Amy? Yes. And you specifically said, can you see if Dylan Farrell will talk with us? And that took some doing because Dylan's very reclusive. It took me a month just to get a message to her by a third party. And then we finally started talking and then she did an initial interview She was very careful, very mistrustful, and rightfully so, because she'd been lambasted by the media before. So I stayed in touch with her, and we just kept having conversations. And one day, when I was at Dylan's house, she said, would you like to meet my mom? 
And I said, sure. And so we went over to Mia's house and, and I met Mia for the first time and she was lovely and charming. And she said, it's really great to meet you. And I'm never, ever, ever going to sit down and do an interview with you folks. And then she turned and fled. So that's how it started. Amy, when was it we first reached out, you first reached out to Dylan? Um, I first tried to reach Dylan at the beginning of January of 2018. I didn't have a first conversation with her until February. And then we did her interview in February of 2018. We didn't interview Mia until late that fall, November of 2018. It took quite a while. I want to really underline Amy Hurdy's incredible, incredible work in this because Kirby and I were like, "Mm, we don't know. Maybe the story's been told. Yes, there's a value to it, but... I remember asking my kids, do you think this is a project we should do? I was sort of blown away that you got Dylan to say yes, because that was not easy. But you're incredible. And um, I love that you you just, you know, you're like a, a tenacious pit bull with a capacious heart, you know, and you just <laughs> don't give up, but in a really good way. And it's just beautiful what happens because of it and what could not have happened without it. I mean, at the time, it was just after Me Too had broken, and we were looking at stories, and there were a lot of stories out there that we were coming across that hadn't been broken, that we were considering making films on. And so so when, you know, Amy Hurdy came and said, well, this is is a great subject for a film, you know, obviously I read about it when it came out and everything, but I I thought that there was so much information out there, and it had already been plowed through that we'd end up doing a rehash of what had been done. And Amy kept saying, no, 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 this is, there's a lot more here. And well, as you'll see, I mean, there is a lot more here. I mean, what you're seeing here is a story that wasn't adequately covered, even though it was extensively covered. And I became convinced after I did the initial interview with Dylan, I remember in this house in Brooklyn, when, as you said, Kirby, we were interviewing a lot of women. And I do remember Dylan's first interview vividly. And yes, as you said, Amy, she was shy and withdrawn. She's not shy. She was guarded, guarded. Yeah. Reluctantly forthcoming. But I did at that time go, oh, there is a lot here I didn't know and hadn't heard because I'm I'm what I'm 58 so I grew up I'm like one of the prime demographics of people who really was sort of in the in the culture when this was a cultural phenomena and for those listening back in the day Woody and Mia really were kind of they were Hollywood royalty they were sort of like the <laughs> the Brad and Angelina of their day if you can imagine a day when there wasn't social media so Back in the 80s and 90s, you know, the media anointed certain, a select number of celebrities. And then we really all just sort of focused and glommed onto them and sort of followed their life. So there was a smaller pool of people that all of us were sort of given to pay attention to. And there was more control over the narrative, right? There wasn't ways for celebrities themselves to self-present or perforate that narrative. It was all sort of controlled by the media. And so I think that's really, really important for people to know and understand moving forward, A, how significant Woody and Mia were as cultural figures and how controlled the narrative around them was. And I want to also say, which is really important, they were very skeptical when we initially approached and when Amy approached, and rightfully so. They had had decades of being misrepresented or only having one side of the story represented in the media and so had just sort of 
given up and didn't think that that was really a space where they would be given a fair and honest hearing, I guess. I don't know what the word would be. They sort of were like, look, no good comes from speaking and we don't know you and we're not interested. And it really was a very slow and long process of reaching out and saying, we don't have an agenda. We don't know what the story is. We're just interested in exploring. And here are our bona fides. And we promise whatever we will present will be the truth um, and will be rigorously investigated. They both chose, Dylan and Mia, both chose, despite their fear, to, to try to trust us. And I think that's the very definition of courage. So two of those people whom you approached, Amy, and had to win the trust of were Daisy and Fletcher Previn. And as listeners will remember, Daisy and Fletcher Previn are the children that Mia had with her second husband, Andre Previn. And after that marriage ended and they divorced, I think the children all went to live with her and she sort of became the de facto primary parent. And then when she started having her relationship with Woody, we were really curious, like, was he really mom's boyfriend and an ancillary figure that they barely saw, or was he super integrated in the family? And we really didn't know, and we were curious. So we asked those questions, and here was what we heard first from Fletcher about how the children perceived Woody and how he perceived Woody growing up. Um, yeah, he very much was a, a father figure. I mean, I had my, my actual father, but... Um, he was not around day to day, and and Woody very much functioned in that capacity. Would would come over regularly, would have meals with us, would talk to us, would play with us, would take me to the park and throw a baseball around, fish in the pond together up in Connecticut, make himself available for playtime, uh, playdates at his apartment, taking us to the toy store, buying us Christmas presents. So when did Sunyi come into your lives? Well, she was adopted by my mother and my biological father, so she was in our lives. So she was in your lives, right. Yes. Okay. So he related to her in the same way as he related to all of you. Like, it's conceivable she would have also thought of him as a father figure to some extent. Oh, yeah, for sure. We went on trips together. She had the same relationship to him that all of us did. So that Fletcher trip was was really interesting. I know that you both haven't heard that for a very long time. What strikes you from it? Well, what strikes me is how much he considers Woody just a typical father, right? And it, that's not surprising. He talks about not only himself, but also all his siblings. And that's not surprising because even if Woody wasn't there all the time or wasn't living there all the time, he was the father figure that was around there all the time. And if you're growing up and this person is in your house, you, you're going to consider them your father. You're going to act like you know, they are the father. That is what a father is to you. So um, I, I think it's, a, it's important to look at it from the point of view of the children, not the point of view of Woody. Yeah, I totally agree. I was really struck in this conversation, and we're going to hear a clip from Daisy in a minute, just about how extensive he was involved. Because prior to, like, doing this and me asking this question, I actually sort of assumed it did have a lot of distance. He's busy. He's a filmmaker. When I was growing up, the public portrayal of it was more a boyfriend situation as opposed to a father situation. And it really struck me in this Fletcher interview how much he said, no, I had Andre, but Woody really was in our lives for 12 years from when I was a young child until an adult. And for all intent and purposes, functioned not just to me, but to my siblings as a father. And we went on trips together. We went 
out together. We went to dinner, played baseball. It was a lot of activity, more than activity than I ever had with a father growing up. And so that was, for me, revelatory. Amy, did you have any thoughts? Touching on what you said about how extensively he was in their lives. I mean, you realize from what Fletcher said that the magnitude of the loss of of not just Woody Allen as a father figure, but also of Suni as a sister. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Now, that's a good point and something, you know, yeah, people don't really talk about or how the whole family, you know, as we'll see as, as the episodes progress, were really impacted. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about approaching Fletcher, I don't think we talked about that. Do you have any memories of getting in touch with him? And was he reluctant or was he eager or what was his? <laughs> oh, Fletcher was loath to talk to us. Um, he was adamant that he didn't want to be part of the same false narrative that had been put out for years and years. And I basically just reassured him that we didn't have an agenda, that we weren't attacking anyone, that we were simply interested in hearing his perspective. Exactly. Exactly. Because this whole story has really been told from the outside. It's been told through the media. This is not something that Mia has come forward publicly, obviously on camera, not at all, but even very little. The children have not wanted to talk about it. So nobody knew what the real experience was going on inside the family. And one of the best ways, I think, to convey particularly what the family was like was all this trove of home video footage we had, which really shows a completely different dynamic than what was coming out in the press. And it gives you a sense that this is a story. This is a family story. This is one of the things that struck me from the very beginning about this, that this is really a story about a family. Yes, there's all this media. Yes, there's issues having to do with accusations of a crime. But ultimately, it's all expressed most powerfully and most intimately through the people in the family. And that's that's the way we want to set up episode one, that you were with this family, you, you were with Dylan, you were with Mia, you were with the children as and the friends of the family as everything started to happen. And what's so lucky, I thought, for us was you don't have to trust a narrator. You just see the footage yourself, right? So it's not like, oh, they all said that Fletcher's saying we all spent time together, but now we're seeing hours and hours and hours of footage taken over a decade of them all operating like a really normal, large, sprawling, loving family with kind of a traditional mother and father, right? Yeah, yeah. And also you, you, what you see off, or you hear off camera and kind of sense anyway, is what Mia is like as a mother. How she's, even yeah, even true. as she's videotaping, she's also a mother. Yeah. You know, she's picking up a toy for Ronan. She's yeah. uh, asking what people want for lunch. And and so you really, yeah. you get a sense of, um, of her as a mother. And, and it's interesting that the person who's doing the filming, who's off camera, sometimes is the person who's most present. And that certainly here in, in many occasions. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Okay, so now I'm going to play for you all a clip of an excerpt from the interview we did with Daisy, Daisy Previn, Mia's daughter with Andre. So I asked her the same question, you know, we all wanted to know. So how did, you know, what, what was your perspective of your of Woody? You know, how did, how did you relate to him and how did all the children relate to him? And here's what Daisy had to say. Well, Woody said that it's no big deal. He wasn't that close to any of you. This wasn't, how, how would you, what would you say to him? I, I, I know he said that and I know it's probably easy for him to say that. Growing up, he was there all the time. He was there. I would 
I would sneak in sometimes early in the morning from being out all night, and uh, he'd be in the kitchen sitting there. This uh, and he would he would actually you know hide in the laundry room. Your mom's walking around, you know, and I'll let you know when you. So he was actually he was very cool. He was really cool about that. Um, yeah, he's <laughs> like an ally. Yeah, pretty, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. You know, I'd try to sneak in, and he'd be there, and you know, and then he you know. Tell me to come in the laundry. Okay, your mom's in the bathroom. You can run up to your loft now. So, yeah, he was pretty much an ally. Boy, that's interesting. Sorry, but you don't you don't create a secret alliance with someone's child. Well, unless you're the, your, your child, unless you consider them your daughter, you, you might. I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, in some ways, that shows that they had a father, Daisy and Woody had a father-daughter relationship. It's an interesting question, though, you bring up. <laughs> it is well, strange. You're right. Yeah, it's secretive behavior that he's encouraging against his partner. That is true. That is true. We talked earlier, Amy, you talked about gaining people's trust and how hard it was to get interviews for this film. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how hard it was for you to get some of the family members to speak. And in particular, I know Daisy doesn't appear on camera. And do you want to say a little bit more about why that is? Daisy did not want to be recognized on the street. She wanted to try to have a private life without having the reminders of this incredibly painful episode. And so I told Daisy that we would work with her to make sure that what she told us was accurately represented. There's no way to risk that then, right? So so she agreed to just sit down and have a conversation with us. And then I think, you know, Amy Zering, you took it from there because you made her feel very comfortable and that she could be open and I think based on that reassurance, I said, just give it a try and see how it feels. And we'll take it from there, baby steps. And she trusted us. That that took some doing. It's it's It really can't be stated enough on how much of an impact this had on everyone's lives and how devastating it was. So it's interesting. We were just listening to Daisy and Fletcher, and they were talking about how Woody was really for them, all intent and purpose as a father and really functioned as a father within the family, which was surprising to us. That was something I didn't hear in the media in the 90s at all. And what rattles around, when I heard Daisy just now, I was thinking, you know, it's slightly offensive or greatly offensive. Whenever I hear in the press, they refer to Daisy as the adopted daughter or Sunyi as the adopted daughter of Mia or Dylan as Woody's adopted daughter, Woody and Mia's adopted daughter, because it's as if the fact that you're adopted, you would relate to your parent differently, you know, and not really think of them as a father. I don't even really know, but it just is something I wanted to flag because it bothered me throughout making this film. Every time I would kind of read the press and see, gee, you know, did they really have to say the adopted daughter? I mean, Dylan was adopted at what, how many months? Like as a tiny baby. So, I mean, I don't even understand it, even at whatever age you're adopted. Anyway, so we've been talking a lot about trust and um, it wasn't just family members that Amy had to win the trust of, but it was also friends. Um, and people that were sort of close to the family at the time, um, who we really wanted to speak to because we would get another perspective, right, and an independent perspective on what they saw going on. And um, so now I'm going to play a clip from Casey Pascal. Casey, remember in episode one, she's Mia's childhood friend from boarding school, and she was someone who was literally in and out of the Pharaoh household at this time and saw some things that just didn't quite sit right. Um, so here's more from Casey's interview in which she talks about that. So if you came over for a play date and Woody was there... There would be no play John, date. Or, or the girls, my girls. Or your girls could not play with Dylan. No, because... she was occupied. 
with her daddy. And as she got older, I noticed that she didn't seem to be enjoying it at all. She'd be staring off into space when he was... It was all coming from him. It was one-sided. And she, you know, she didn't seem... She was somewhere else. It wasn't typical. You, Absolutely. Nothing typical. Nothing typical. Did it start to concern you? Oh, yes. And we talked about it. Mia and I talked about it. <clears throat> and then when finally she said, well, he's seeing someone for it. What did she mean by that? Well, the, she had mentioned that she, her concerns that, that uh, this did not seem appropriate. I mean, you've got to remember there was a whole bunch of children around. And to have this one child almost like going through this, I mean, you, most adults, I think, would sit and watch, talk and watch the children play. Right. But this was not like that. Or they'd play with several children. It wouldn't just be one. One. They were removed, removed from the others. He would purposely remove her, you noticed that. Absolutely. Take, pick her up, take her off. And also the odd thing is, is that, okay, sometimes dads are close with their daughters. Then the kid would have a very normal, comfortable relationship with that. Back and forth. Right? Reciprocal. I didn't see that. You didn't see any of that. And no, no talking to any of the other children, my children, any of the other children around. Woody. Right. Woody had no interest in talking to any other children. Anybody else. Any, anybody else, grown-ups or children. He would just come in, ignore everybody, beeline for Dylan, take her off somewhere. Right. So this, you saw, hmm. That was concerning. Very concerning. And then one day Mia asked me, uh, did I think it was uh, odd that he asked um, Dylan to let him suck, her, to have her suck his thumb? I said, that is creepy, really creepy. And I said, yes, I think it's very strange. When was that conversation? Was it before everything happened? Yes. Yeah, so with this Casey clip, we start to hear how there's perhaps trouble in paradise, things are not quite what they seem. Some of the behavior is a little strange. People just don't really know how to interpret it. And what I like about what we did in episode one was we sort of presented the fairy tale, and then we started just to sort of peel away the layers and peek behind the curtains and see, hmm, something else is going on. And I was wondering, Kirby, as we crafted that with our amazing editors, Parker Laramie and Michaela Schur, and later Sarah Newens, how did we all come to figure out how to depict that sensitively? I've always thought that one of the most fascinating, difficult, impossible to even imagine experiencing parts of this is what Mia goes through. You know, I honestly feel a whole film can be made around that, around someone who is your partner, someone you love, someone you spend so much professional and personal time with, and then you start to suspect this. I mean, it's... I mean, if you look at it, it's such a classic film trope. I mean, it's a classic Hitchcock trope. It's similar to uh, many other films. and But here you see somebody actually going through it from the inside. And so just cinematically, that was one of the things that I think we wanted to drive toward was getting yourself deeper and deeper into the head of first Dylan and then Mia, uh, and particularly Mia because she was an adult as she struggled with coming to terms with the reality of what was happening. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to leave, but before I go, I just want to mention one more thing. 
One of the things that struck me was the way that you you conducted these interviews. I mean, it was just so much like a conversation. And it, and it was obvious, I think, for a lot of these family members that it's very hard for them to relive this because they too have lived their whole, this whole story has been lived in the media for, for decades. And just the way that you were able to get them to talk about this in a way that they weren't guarded, that wasn't re-traumatizing, and that they were talking about it again as if they were thinking about it almost from a new perspective in some way. Sometimes I just say back to them what they said because it gives them more time to reflect. And that's why a lot of times it seems like, well, why didn't she listen? It's I did listen. I just sort of echo back because I'm more interested in them having that space to reflect and then they're more forthcoming. I just want to add to that because actually that is a very interesting technique of yours is for you to say back exactly what somebody said. And I, I think what that does is that tells them they're heard and it makes them much more comfortable with you. I mean, just to say the words back to them. But it's also important for me that, and what you said is, is it is a conversation and it, and I want to be completely present. So they are leading the conversation, not me, which is a little inverted with an interviewer. And then I take from where they're going and where their energy is and I follow up and go to the next step. So next up, we have two interviews, but first I'm going to say goodbye to Kirby. Thank you, Kirby. It was great having you. And Amy Hurdy and I are now going to talk with psychologist Dr. Sherry Venino and also do a new interview with Priscilla Gilman, who you remember is Matthew Previn's girlfriend. And Matthew is Mia's son with Andre Previn. We're excited now to reach out to Dr. Sherry Venino. Sherry is a clinical and forensic psychologist who specializes in adolescent sexual abuse. So I actually run a parenting group, a non-offending parenting group for parents whose children have been sexually abused, uh, either incest or some other type of child sexual abuse. And it's the number one thing I see is this guilt and the grief around how did I not see this happening under my own nose? So that first point is super interesting because what you say is this is such a third rail topic. We have so not seen it in our media, right? In stories being told, not discussed in the general public. So that in how is how in that a way does actually protect predators because we don't even know how to we don't even know what the signs are, right? There's been no history of even training us as bystanders to recognize this behavior. Is that correct? Yeah. I always say to the parents I work with that I wish somebody would give parents when they have a child a handbook on here's what to look out for. Um, You know, if one in four girls are sexually abused before the the age of 18, I think as parents, we, you would think that this would almost be handed out and you take it home from the hospital as a book on this because it's, it's happening so much. And I think it's, it's a secretive underground topic. There's so much shame. There's so much victim blaming that goes on that it becomes sort of the perfect crime. I mean, quite frankly, not only is it not talked about, and not only is there so much shame that prevents a victim from coming forward, but then on top of it, as a society, we victim blame. Well, why did this victim allow that to happen? Why didn't the mother stop it? We like to think it's everybody's fault except for the offenders. And so in some ways, it really is the perfect crime. And so talk to me, what would you have in that handbook if you gave it to parents? Right. So I think that's a really great question. So there are a lot of things that parents should be looking out for. So 
Grooming is what almost every offender engages in. And grooming is really sort of the slow, incremental boundary crossing, sexual boundaries, emotional boundaries, physical boundaries um, that allow the sex offending to occur. So offenders are very good at making themselves that child's world. And what does that do? How, how, why would they do that? Right. It makes the child more def- uh, dependent on that offender psychologically. Um, and it also decreases the chances that they're going to tell when the abuse actually starts. You know, so some other, you know, things that I noticed, you know, a big one is offenders were often slowly increase the way they touch the child, where when the actual sexual abuse begins, it's less alarming to that child. That what happens there is it's starting to normalize this kind of intrusive touch. You know, it makes the child think it's normal. It makes the child think that it's okay. So that when the actual more intrusive abuse happens, it doesn't send off alarm bells. Interesting. Um, There's this incremental transgressive behavior of, of, of touch. And then you do exactly. it all, and you also do it publicly. So the child who knows nothing else goes, oh. Well, this, if no one else is reacting or this must, right. How would you not, how would you know anything different? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, something that's really interesting about offenders, sex offenders is that oftentimes they will increase their own risk taking where they might do something in public like that because it's exciting to them. And it's very, um, narcissistic. Most sex offenders are extremely narcissistic and it's this idea of look what I can get away with. Whoa. So, so part of the thrill and pleasure is kind of consciously and unconsciously also transgressing in public because it's, it's a power trip and like... Exactly. Wow, exactly. that's so interesting. We didn't really... That, that's interesting. But, you know, just some other grooming behaviors that parents really need to be aware of is um, showing a child pornography. And again, it's another way to sort of ease into sexual abuse, normalize sexual interaction and behavior. I, I was really struck when she said she would turn into an animal. Right. So, you know, obviously children, especially at that age, are, are much better at acting out on their thoughts and feelings than really putting them into clear, concise sentences and whatnot. Um, that's why with children, you're always wanting to look at nonverbal behavior. Um, so, you know, hide me, hide me. I mean, when I was watching that, I was thinking, hide me from what? I mean, something was really bothering her. Um, She wanted to get away from something um, or protect herself from something. And I think as a parent, anytime you're seeing a child not want to go with somebody, it's whether it's a babysitter, whether it's an adult, whether it's anyone, you want to stop and pay attention to that. It could be nothing or it could be something. And it's so important to be paying attention and not just sweep your gut feelings under the rug. And I think Mia, like a lot of parents, initially swept a lot of feelings and a lot of gut instinct under the rug because it's really hard to believe that someone you love and someone that acts like a good parent most of the time could actually be harming your child. And unfortunately, I think a lot of sort of non-offending caregivers or parents get that thought in their head. Is there like, how could I even think this? Am I the one that's sick? Am I the one that's crazy? Am I making this up? Like, 
this is the opposite of my impression of this person. So it can't possibly be true. And I thought it was striking that he not only got mad at her, but then when he went to a psychologist, he then was basically like not mad anymore saying, okay, you know, I get it. I need to work on this. Um, and she commented that Mia commented that she felt relieved, right? You know, this is like, oh, don't worry because it's all under control. You know, I just didn't know how to show my love and affection. And that's quite frankly, what every mom would want to hear in that situation. I misread it. That's a lot easier to swallow. That's a lot easier pill to swallow. I misread the situation and he's getting help. And this is not what I thought it was. Can you talk more about why Mia gave Woody the benefit of the doubt? Why'd she stay? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons from watching it that Mia gave him the benefit of the doubt. First of all, she loved him. Uh, In normal, real world, we give people we love the benefit of the doubt. Um, So again, when you're looking at it through the lens of somebody who's not an offender, you do things like give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, It's hard to believe what you're seeing when you're seeing just little tiny sort of bits. I think that when she saw the pictures, the pornographic pictures of Sunni, she, you know, she, things started to get clarified. Um, But I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that she loved him. I think she perceived him as a very kind, caring, loving, giving father. And the hard part is, is I think as a society, we expect these offenders to show up, you know, looking like monsters. They don't. They actually fit in really well. There's lots of them who are who are good guys in another in a, in a lot of other parts of their lives. They hold important positions in society. They um, are oftentimes charismatic. They're oftentimes intelligent, and so it's hard to put two and two together. And I would say to you or a listener, what if somebody today told you that your father, your brother? your husband was sexually abusing a child. Like how how long would it take you to wrap your head around that? How quickly would you think that's not possible? Um, Or would you just instantly believe it? Thank you, Sherry, so much for talking to us. This was so illuminating and we're grateful for the work you do and for taking the time to watch the episode and, and share with us your insights. So I'm sure you're all recognized this next guest from the episode. Amy and I are now excited to speak again with Priscilla Gilman. Priscilla's, as I said earlier, is a family friend who grew up inside the Pharaoh household because she was actually dating Matthew's, Mia's son, Matthew, at the time. Priscilla's going to talk to me and Amy about being Mia's sole daughter, S-O-U-L, daughter, and she talks about what it was like at the time. Um, but before she comes on, Amy Hurdy, can you tell us a bit about how we first got in touch with Priscilla? Okay, sure. Um, so what led to Priscilla was my uh, request to Dylan of start giving me names of people that I should be talking to. And one of the first names she said was, well, here's someone who knew the family, had this amazing perspective on our family for years, and her name is Priscilla Gilman. So uh, why don't you call and talk to her? And Priscilla initially was a little bit skeptical, as almost everyone on this project was. And then she um, said, okay, I'll talk to you. And I think her interview was just incredible. I think it was one of the first interviews that was 
so revelatory and gave such amazing perspective on this family who was so reclusive and private. And now we're joined by Priscilla. So, hey, Priscilla, <laughs> why don't you let everybody know how we connected with you? It was an email out of the blue. And I immediately checked in with Dylan and Ronan and Mia. And I said, this is what I've received. And, you know, we've we've all been asked many, many times over the years. And um, they they all said, these people we can trust. These are people who are advocates for justice. And we feel safe with them. And if you would be willing to speak with them, we think you could have so much to contribute. And I always welcome an opportunity to share the truth and my perspective, having known them for many, many, many years. Um, I actually knew Matthew since in the in the episode, I say that I met them in 1987, but I met Matthew in 85 and we were best friends for about two and a half years before we became boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so you saw the episode. What did you think? The episode was phenomenal, let me just say. I was crying. It brought back so much for me. And seeing that footage, I had no idea that Mia had all that footage. I mean, she was always videoing, but still, I mean, just so many moments that she captured. She captured just the the warmth and the joy and the playfulness and the easy, casual intimacy and the way that that family, for me, I mean, I have one sibling Um, And I felt that this was that big, bustling, nourishing family that I didn't have. And the family welcomed me with open arms. I mean, almost immediately, Mia considered me, she still, she calls me her her soul daughter, and I call her my soul mother. And um, there was just such a beautiful attentiveness to the uniqueness of each child in the family. And Mia has always been my role model and my mentor in being a parent who takes a child as he or she is, not what you want them to be, not fantasy, not projection, but looking at the child as he or she is and working tirelessly to advocate for that child and help them to bloom and become their best self. For those that are skeptical or one of the things was, well, why would you, you know, suddenly she's taping her child. Can you explain how like she taped every, she taped everybody eating breakfast. Like she was like an amateur cineast, right? Absolutely. I mean, and that was for me part of how tuned she was to us, that she just delighted in every single aspect of the children's days. And she wanted to preserve these memories for us all. And she wanted to have everything there so that we could look back on it, so that we could celebrate it. And it's so funny that you mention, um, after I watched the episode, you know, I, I just thought to myself, this gives the lie to what Woody's been saying for years. Like, why in the world would she pick up this video camera? Isn't that suspicious? Don't we think she set Dylan up to this and, you know, turned on the camera and filmed her? She was always filming. The camera was always there or a child was filming her interacting with the children. And it's just so special. And, you know, after I saw all the the footage in the episode, I immediately texted her and said, um, you know, it just brought me to tears. It just brought me right back to that experience of, of that warmth and coziness and that love that you just, that we created. And I said, you know, Thank goodness we still have these memories and we'll never allow Woody to taint them. 
Tell us more just your organic, like anything that that popped out at you, any scenes that you want to amplify or say another anecdote behind oh, what you really don't know when you watch this footage is that this was what was going on. One of the things that's been hardest in Woody's false narratives that he's propagated over the years is this idea that Dylan lacked the ability to distinguish between fantasy and reality or that she was troubled in some way. And you see in that footage, and my memories um, are all about this, she was firmly in control of the distinction between fantasy and reality. Like, we would do all this fantasy play, and then we would get in the bath, as you saw, and sing songs and laugh, and they would share their hopes and their ideas with me. And they were so trusting and so loving. And I think one of the things that made it all the more devastating for me, you know, all the revelations um, about Woody was that, you know, I I was fully invested in Mia's family as a place of, that celebrated childhood innocence and purity and family love and respecting every member of the family as a unique individual. And there was no distinction between adopted and biological children, right? I mean, that's something that Woody said, like, oh, it's just an adopted sister, right? So why would they care? Um, There was absolutely no distinction in the way Mia loved those children, supported those children, and just created the ability for their imaginations to bloom. So can you contextualize for us, because the episode ends with Sunni, we really haven't gone into Sunni's world yet. We'll go into that in the future. But for now, for those that just watched this, what was Woody's relationship to her? Was he really this absent stepdad? He was a stepfather figure. Absolutely and 100%. He took the family on long European trips. He was up in the country as much as he could be. He was there every morning and every evening. He was Mia's life partner. He was around all the time. And I cannot, when, when he says, oh, I hardly knew her. If he hardly knew her, that could only be true in the sense that Sunni was shy and withdrawn and maybe didn't talk as much as the other children. But he was with her for many, many years, watching her grow up from a young girl and being her mother's life partner, being there for breakfast, being there for dinner, taking them on trips, being up in the country on the weekends, and being the actual father of her siblings. Priscilla, anything else that um, flashed through your mind watching this? You know what flashed through my mind more than anything else was the beauty of our times together. It was real. And it's been preserved. And now everyone can see it. And everyone can see what a beautiful, loving, caring family this was. And... Truly, you know, I, I, I texted um, Ronan and Dylan. I was like, you know, me and my little loves, I could see it again. And it was some of the most important, meaningful, beautiful relationships of my life and taught me how to be a mother in many ways. Thank you so much for joining us for our first episode. Thank you to Priscilla Gilman, Dr. Sherry Venino. Kirby Dick and Amy Hurdy, who I just adore working with and I'm so grateful to have as partners and colleagues. I'm your host, Amy Ziering. We'll be back next week, right after the second episode premieres on Sunday on HBO Max. 
speaking with new guests, and playing brand new audio tape that you can't hear anywhere else. If you like the podcast, or if you have a minute, please review it and rate it via Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever else you might be listening to podcasts. You can also stream it on HBO Max. We so look forward to connecting with you all next week. Woody Allen denies ever having been sexually inappropriate or abusive with Dylan. Woody Allen's therapist claims his behavior wasn't sexual as well. Woody Allen and Suni Previn were approached in December of 2020, and each was given two weeks to confirm interest in participating in an interview to address the allegations in this series. Their representative confirmed that the request was received, yet it was never responded to.